0: Welcome to the Futureverse. In this series from Intelligence Squared and Ytree, we bring together ideas, conversations, and insights around society's most pressing issues and how we can come up with innovative solutions. In this episode, a recording of a live event we recently held in London, we're talking about a revolution that's underway in how we all understand the ideas of value and worth. Our guests include Simon Brewer, former chief investment officer of the European branch of Morgan Stanley. He's currently a senior advisor to Rothschild & Co and was CEO of Vantage Investment Advisory until 2021. And he's the co-founder and host of the award-winning Money Maze podcast. Adrienne Buller also joined us, who is a senior fellow at Commonwealth Progressive Think Tank, whose research and writing have featured in the Financial Times. Bloomberg, The New Statesman and The Guardian. She's the author of The Value of a Whale on the Illusions of Green Capitalism. And rounding out the panel was Lucy Kellaway, a journalist turned teacher after a long career as a journalist for the Financial Times, she retrained to become a teacher of maths and economics. She's a co founder of the educational charity Now Teach, which helps experienced people retrain as secondary school teachers. Her book, Re Educated, details her decision to leave her job and her husband to pursue a radically different life. Throughout the event, the audience had a chance to vote on different questions that related to our three speakers discussion. While you're listening, I invite you to do the same and tweet us your opinions using the hashtag Futureverse. And if you'd like to see how the Y-Tree audience voted, visit the YTree tree website at y-tree.com slash futureverse or Google the word futureverse. Our host for the evening was the broadcaster John Sopel. Let's hear from him now.
1: Good evening. I'm delighted to welcome you uh, this evening to this Ytree event in partnership with Intelligence Squared. Uh, Ytree was founded in 2017 to give clients insight, advice about money and life itself. Ytree calls this insight financial life intelligence. and At the heart of the idea is um, how do you define wealth? Is it defined by how you live or what you have? And that's where Futureverse comes in and the future verse is where white tree brings together ideas conversations, insights like this, and about the one we're about to have, around our community's passions and problems. And tonight is the second uh, live event in the Futureverse series. Uh, The first was a debate about life, whether life was going to be better in five years, 50 years, or 500 years. And that is real futurology guessing to estimate what life will be like in uh, 500 years. And it was a fascinating discussion with Sir Anthony Gormley, who I don't know, as a result of that discussion, decided he was going to move out of the United Kingdom, uh, Mo (laughs) Gowdaf, And uh, the environmentalist Clover Hogan. Tonight's event will feature on the central theme of the Future First, the value revolution. And the subject and title of this evening's uh, conversation is Reimagining Worth. Uh, We're going to be focusing on how the definition of value has changed in recent times, and we'll be exploring the different ways society decides what things are worth, for example. How much is it worth to have a stable government, for example, which seems a yeah. timely reference. Um, how do we define value? How has the value this changed over time? And who has a say over what is deemed valuable or worthless? In broad terms, there's been a global consensus about what constitutes value ever since the Industrial Revolution. Products and services could be exchanged for money, which you could in turn pay for other products and services. But we're now in an era of disruption. So has the definition of value itself expanded to mean more than economic value? Health, our relationships with those around us and preserving our planet, all of these things are as if not more important than the number in our bank account. And this event will explore the recent changes in how we perceive and understand value. Simon, let me start with you. You've experienced the financial world during your time of Morgan Stanley and now Rothschild, and your career has, I guess, centered around what has value. have you seen over the last two or three decades big shifts in how
2: value is assessed? So I think that one's prism for examination is almost always too short-term. And the financial services industry is extraordinarily guilty. You can pick up an analyst report or a commentator will say, well, you know, it's amazing. It's been 10 years. It really isn't very helpful, particularly if you've lived in a liquidity-fueled central bank in a manipulated environment where they've firehosed every crisis since Y2K in a, what I would consider, an inexcusable way for which we are paying the price with this inflation and the the instabilities beyond Ukraine. So it's only when you put things in a proper historical context that you can understand whether something may or may not be cheap and I'm conscious that we in a world where things are changing very rapidly in terms of disintermediation in terms of obsolescence I mean we we're FTSE C 100 or s and p companies have never had a shorter existence and, uh, uh, and you know CEOs are now running companies and they're all uh, and the companies are dying before then so I think that if you take for example and I'm going to give you some slightly uh, you know um, abstruse examples uranium. How do you solve the big energy crisis where many have naively thought you could do it in speed without cost? Yet, nuclear is part of the solution. Then you look at uranium price, you say, where's it been over the last 40 years? How did it go from, you know, how did it have an 80% bear market, top to bottom? Does it feature? Then you can contextualize it, looking at it five years. Then you can add in other factors that may or may not change. And so, really, the prism through which I approach value as an investor is to be able to try and understand. What an asset has been worth in the past, what it might be worth. And you have to relate that to something in a company. It might be price to book, it might be price to dividend yields, price to revenues. Um, But in other situations, even currencies, you can use well-known tools to try and understand whether something is cheap or expensive, and underlying it is the human frailty that likes things are bright. People like things that are new, sexy, and shiny, and they tend to disregard stuff as old. And people buy and buy, and they get super excited. And then what follows is disappointment to despair, and therein lies the opportunity for investors to buy up stuff that has often been discarded and unloved.
1: One of the big changes that we've seen in the finance industry is the growth and the significance and the power of private equity. Can you talk about how that plays itself out?
2: Well, I would not claim to have any great insights into private equity, but we've been very lucky in the podcast. We are in the process of releasing five episodes from the top. You know, the top firms from you know, KKR to CDR, etc. And two things have struck me. One is the quality of the people running these firms. And having been at what was considered to be, and was a well-managed firm, Morgan Stanley for nearly 20 years, I think that some of the management teams I've met at these private equity firms are really good and robust. And you know, although there'll be fractures and dislocations and problems coming out of what could be a very painful period for some time. Some of these are going to come out stronger. They'll be the restructurers. They'll be the owners of assets, and I think they'll be a bigger firms. So that was observation number one. And observation number two, which comes nicely back to, to you know to value, is you know people talk about markets are expensive, Well, the U.S. stock market has been and remains expensive by historical standards. The U.K. stock market is cheap by historical standards. In fact, 40 it's, it's as cheap as it's been in 40 years relative to other markets for reasons that you know, we can go into maybe be perfectly logical, but you know, they are therefore quite focused on where the value is. And that's why a lot of private equity activity has been and will continue to be on UK assets. So what is the future
1: of uh, private equity? and uh, Does its growth signify a shift in the way that individuals and companies are investing?
2: I think one of the problems public markets have not served investors well. You know, you've had a reduction in the number of companies that are listed, a reduction in the number of companies that are researched. Um, if you're a, if you're an owner of a private business and you're thinking What do I do? I'm ready to sell it. Your options were listing or staying private for years, and now it's, do I want to sell it to a competitor? Okay, that was there before, but do I want to sell to a private equity firm and essentially replace my shareholders with permanent capital? So I think that they are here to stay. This is not even given cheap money has created distortions in the way things operate. Private equity are here to stay, and I think that the strong ones will emerge as very significant financial organizations.
1: Every company I seem to speak to, they've appointed an ESG officer, environmental, social, and governance. I wonder what you think of the significances of this.
2: Peter Harrison, who's the CEO of Schroeder, said, I think quite rightly, in 10 years we won't talk about ESG. It'll be simply be part of the process. Is that, you know, when you evaluate a company's governance and their social standards and, you know, environmental footprint, you know, it's just, it's just part of the research. So I think to a certain extent that's, you know, it's good practice. Good firms will tell you they've been doing that for a while. On the other hand, the zealots have got hold of ESG. And I think that in doing so, sometimes <laughs> they are... Evangelical to the point of not being realistic. We can come back with and discuss energy. I think that's sort of you know, a really good example of what happens when you force an agenda. What is the byproduct? Companies don't invest in energy, and now we're opening coal plants up again.
1: Well, okay. Well, let's stick let's with energy. You look at Russia, Ukraine, and you've seen surging oil prices as a result of it. Is that a good place to invest or a bad place to invest? Is it good to invest in coal, now, or a bad place to invest
2: in coal? So, I think there's a very important distinction. I don't think anybody that I'm aware of who's relatively sort of sound of mind would argue that the damage to the planet and the requirement for changes of behavior are paramount. I think my frustration comes in the naive lens that has been overlaid that in execution. And this is simply about if you want to get from where we are to where we must get, how do you do it effectively? And if you discourage some of the very people who can help you in that transition from investing, then you cause bottlenecks and shortages, and then you drive up the prices of all sorts of things and you have unintended consequences.
1: But what do you do when someone says, you know, should I invest ethically or should I invest to get the maximum return on my
2: capital? So, everybody, well, different answers. My answer about a company like Shell for example. Now, Shell... Some people won't buy Shell and BP because they consider them to be, you know, the evil giants. It's interesting that Nikolai Tangan, who runs the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, who is the first to really march down this sort of road of being ethically aware, post on their website the companies from which they have divested. BP is not one of them. In fact, he's done a very interesting interview with Bernaloney of BP. Because if you are BP or Shell and you're spending 20 million plus in the transition yourself towards electrification, those are the folks with the balance sheets to get it done. So starving them of cash. Capital and divesting, where it goes to passive investing, is not, in my opinion, a very helpful route to get to where we need to, which is not in doubt. Okay, Simon, we're going to leave it there. So, Andrew- why do you
1: think human beings are so determined to ascribe economic value to things? what does it say about the, you know, the way you see the world?
3: Yeah, an interesting question. So I think in the book opens with an example of this. So recently, a team of researchers at the IMF um, undertook an exercise to try and place evaluation on whales, great whales as a species. Um, And based on sort of a series of criteria like their ecotourism services or the amount of carbon that they're capable of sequestering over their lifetimes arrives at the very tidy sum of two million U.S. dollars per great whale or about one trillion per the global stock. And I think that's quite an interesting provocation for me about the way that uh, we're approaching our response to the climate and ecological crisis, which thus far has been really dominated by the idea that really the only way to grapple with these challenges is to sort of internalize the cost of these damages to the market. So the idea that the climate crisis is the ultimate market failure, and the same goes for biodiversity collapse, and therefore applying sort of a price or a value to the damages that we're creating or to the species themselves is sort of a mechanism that will then inevitably enable the market to sort of right those wrongs. And I think, you know, that to me reflects slightly sort of narrow-minded or myopic thinking. I think markets are good at some things, but when it comes to the sort of immense complexity and the, you know, systemic embeddedness of fossil fuels within our society and our lives, you know, Simon touched on that, it's not Quite so simple as just starving a couple companies of capital. Um, I think, you know, it's a much more complex question than simply applying a price to it. But we have sort of a society that's really based around, you know, economic value as the primary, you know, source of value in our lives. And anything that doesn't have a dollar value assigned to it or for which a dollar value can't be assigned tends to be excluded from the types of decisions that we make but also principally when it comes to the climate crisis that you know policymakers make everything has to have sort of an economic justification and i think you know that's that's fine in some regards but when it comes to you know a genuinely non-trivial risk of catastrophic ecological outcomes it probably shouldn't from my view be be the priority
1: right fascinating Adrian let me stay with you why do you think that the environment is so often presented as an issue to be seen through the prism of economic terms.
3: Well, I can't really climb inside everybody's head so I might avoid speculating on why that is, but I think I'll speak to why I think in the context of addressing this crisis it's it's a problem. And you know, a big part of the way again that you know we're approaching climate and environmental policy is through prioritizing cost efficiency. So one of the most famous sort of environmental and climate economists is uh, William Nordhaus, many people might be familiar with his work, uh, and he describes, you know, cost efficiency In the context of climate economics, as sort of you know the breakfast, lunch, and dinner of economists, and and the way that we're resolving this problem, and therefore you know market-based mechanisms as the most efficient way to address uh, an ecological crisis. And again, that might be true in a situation in which you had an infinite time horizon ahead of you, Um, but for me, the reality of the pace, scale, and complexity of the challenge that we're facing, you know, means that. you know, appraising what we need to do purely through is this cost efficient? Is this cost effective? Is just going to end up in a position of potentially, you know, catastrophic ecological outcomes. Now, maybe that's a naive perspective to take from the perspective of some people in this room, but I think it's sort of a necessary corrective for us to, you know, think about what it is actually that we're trying to do, which is to prevent a potentially catastrophic ecological outcome start from there and then you know have cost effectiveness and efficiency as a consideration uh, you know farther down the table but
1: isn't ESG a good thing in that it is encouraging companies to invest more ethically to be more conscious of the environment even if the the goal of profit is still there
3: yeah so I think I mean for me what's interesting about ESG is that I find that it's it indicates what I think to be a very encouraging shift in public perspective. So I think the position that it comes from, which is people genuinely would like to not only make, you know, a steady return, but also have their values reflected. I think that's a positive societal shift in perspective. Whether that translates from what is a genuine demand from the public into sort of credible outcomes through the financial system is another question. So we have the question about ESG, you know, being greenwashing and The approach that most people have access to when it comes to ESG investing is you you know, buy into an ESG fund, which is, you know, going to be based on just adjusting your exposure to different industries based off of a mainstream index. And, you know, the amount that that translates into material differences in the behavior of companies in the real world is, you know, I think a bit questionable. We talk about Greenwash from the narrow perspective of, you know, there's all sorts of articles about this green fund has fossil fuel companies in it. And for me, that's not really the big problem. For me, the real issue is that most ESG funds tend to be just chock full of, you know, tech and finance. And that's fine, but it's hard to argue that that's, you know, having a transformative impact on addressing the climate crisis. Many of the big tech companies have quite questionable, you know, human rights and governance issues. And, you know, the Vanguard flagship sort of S&P 500 based ESG fund, you know, its top five holdings are Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, Tesla comes in at number six. So it's hard to say that that ESG fund is really having a material impact on on the climate crisis. Um, And so I think it reflects what is a very positive change in social awareness and consciousness. But I don't necessarily think it's translating to material change in the real world, to put that in scare quotes. Can I share my favorite ESG oh, yeah, anecdote? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so just that one of my favorite studies did an analysis of all the ESG funds available based off of the Russell 3000 and what they found by an order of magnitude, like a hundred times greater than any uh, factor in terms of the difference between the ESG funds and the Russell 3000 was that it selected for companies with no employees, because if you have no employees, then you can't really have labor disputes. <laughs> so one or fewer employees was the single greatest indicator of whether you were in the ESG fund or not. And I think that sort of gets to the heart of this, right, is this is about adjusting your exposure to these issues as an investor. But that's a very different thing than changing, you know, than directing investment in the real economy and then changing the way that companies are behaving and delivering capital to, you know, new upstart companies that might be in the renewable sector, for example.
1: So you've talked about the problems of green and the, the limitations of it. What are the solutions? How do we create a world where you know, value isn't only associated with
3: money. Oh, God, what a question. There are two ways that I'll try to answer that question. And one of them is that as someone who works in the policy space, the concern I have about the sort of proliferation of the popularity of ESG and sustainable investing, as well as the kind of singular fixation with uh, pricing mechanisms as a policy solution among, you know, not only the UK and US governments, the EU European emissions trading system, for example, being the flagship, but also international institutions. You know, that is the default way that we think about this problem. And for me, I think, you know, those things are proving to be ineffective. And that's a huge problem, obviously. And they also, I think, overlook a huge and very important part of this question, which is that the uncomfortable truth of climate and ecological crisis is that this is fundamentally a question of global distribution. You know, there was an incredible in-depth report in Bloomberg the other day about uh, you know the carbon footprints of the richest one percent of the global population, and the uncomfortable part about that is that that's people earning just over hundred thousand U.S. dollars. So we're, we tend to think of the top one percent of the population as being you know the Elon Musks of the world. But the reality is that many people in this room might be in that bracket. The top 10% of the global population of earners is 38,000 US dollars a year. So many people in this room, I imagine, in that bracket. And, you know, the outsized impact not only on carbon emissions, but also on resource use that that cohort of people has is something that we unfortunately need to think about and address. And so when I think about value, for me, it's, you know, thinking about, realistically, our lifestyles are going to have to change, particularly among, you know, the richest people within the richest countries in the world. But that doesn't necessarily need to be an inherently negative thing. I think we have this idea that that's inherently Austerian and anti-progress. But I think, you know, most of us, true value in our lives comes from things that might actually not be priced, that might not be things that we engage with in an economic sense. And it's, you know, this sounds maybe a bit twee, but, you know, time with family and friends, access to nature and green spaces, having, you know, fundamental income security so that you can have access to all the basic things that you need to thrive. It's, you know, shared community spaces, access to arts and theater, all these things. So, you know, when we think about the way that our lives need to change to address these crises is to focus on the parts of our lives that we really, really value. And, the, um, you know, to think about the
4: ones that we could discard. Lucy, I want you to tell us a story. In 2017, I had done 32 years at the FT. For most of that time, I had been writing sarky key columns about corporate life. When I started writing about corporate bullshit, people said, oh, these are all quite funny, but you'll run out of subjects in a year or two. Uh, Whatever it was, just on that column 25 years later, I was still going strong because the great thing about corporate bullshit never stops, just goes on. In fact, actually, this whole thing about companies banging on about value is something that I would have taken to the cleaners in my old life. The sort of companies sort of saying, you know, we create value at every stage on the customer journey, you know, that sort of complete and Utter nonsense. Well, as you can imagine, this was a job I got quite good at doing. It suited my sarcastic personality, which was why I did it for so long. But when I, you know, I had I had a couple of sort of bereavements. My mum was a brilliant school teacher. She died when I was in my late 40s, and I suddenly thought. Oh my God! I need to be my mum. I had wanted to be as 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 little like as my mum as possible. I wanted to go into journalism. Why? Because I valued the status of it. I wouldn't have admitted that at the time, but journalism was such a cool thing to be doing. And in those days remember dinner parties I don't know if any of you go to them I don't know no one's invited (laughs) me to one for decades but um but you know it used to be so nice to be able to say to people uh, you know they always have you know boring question what do you do and then you say I'm a columnist at the Financial Times everyone goes wow (laughs) um and I loved that that was so so good for my ego but your ego, if it's being fed like that, by the time you're 57, if not a lot earlier, your ego starting to feel a bit sick, actually. Your ego is your not remotely impressed by you yourself. And I've, you know, I kind of said everything I had to say. And I thought, what on earth am I going to do now? And you're you're all miles too young for this, but just wait. You're probably not planning that next stage in your career, not just now. Nobody ever said to me that I would go on working probably into my mid-70s. So I did when my dad then died. When mum died, I thought, no, I'm too old at 47. Ten years later, when my dad died, I suddenly thought about it again. And I thought, I'm not too old. My daughter was by then a schoolteacher, and I knew how that they were in such short supply. And so I thought, I'm going to do this. And more than that, I'm going to set up this charity. So if we want to talk about it in value terms, what had motivated me in my 20s? I wanted to be glamorous. I wanted to be high status. By the time I was in my mid-50s, I thought I'd gone post-status. I didn't care at all. About any of that, I also had made enough money. I owned my own house I could afford I took an enormous cut in salary so by the time I had added in all of the extra things I was doing, I was probably making about one hundred and fifty thousand at the end of my career and my and then I was making twenty five at my new one so that was really quite a large pay cut but That was because I'd saved enough already. It wasn't because I was suddenly going to live very simply. So it's very important to realize that it was from a point of privilege that I did that. Um, But the value was my motivation was different. What did I really want? And my sister slightly patronizingly said to me, she's still a journalist, by the way. Ah. She said to me, I suppose you want the luxury of being useful. Um, So... (laughs) She, that, Good relationship with that. I actually adore my sister, and that's why she dared say something as irritating. But she was absolutely right. That was what I wanted, and you know what? It's what I have. I'm five years into teaching, and the luxury of being useful, and yes, it is a luxury because I can jolly well afford it, although actually, I'll tell you, playground duty at 7am isn't all that luxurious when it's raining.
1: We were just chatting before you came in and the audience joined us. And you told me that you've got a new job and that you're moving and you're moving home. Do you want to elaborate?
4: Okay, yeah, so once you, so I didn't change my life at all for 30 years. And then once you start doing it, you realize you can change all the time. It's quite exciting, it's quite fun, do different things. So I've been a Londoner my whole life and I've just moved to Newcastle. I don't know anyone in Newcastle. <laughs> Um, it's completely random. I have got. I'm leaving my school in town hamlets where I'm teaching entirely Bengali children. I'm moving to a Catholic school in a suburb of Newcastle. Um, so there we go. Do we need to talk about the vulgar money side of it? Yeah. No. You need to talk about the housing side. Of it. Okay. The housing side of it. So it's
1: like getting blood from a stone. <laughs> no. She knew exactly the question. Come on.
4: I was going to make him ask. Um, so yes. I have just bought a former bishop's palace outside Newcastle. This is leveling one woman's levelling up um, uh, achievement. But, I mean, talk about value. If you want to buy... What, we, what are you moving out of? So, if you want to buy... So, uh, well, I'm... I am living in a modern house in Hackney, which has not yet been sold but will be shortly. Value considerably more than a bishop's palace outside Newcastle, absolutely ginormous. I want to go back to the sort of kind of
1: value status kind of question, because you, you clearly set up why you made this move and why you wanted to do what you wanted to do. But do you think that people have treated you differently? when? If you've ever went to a dinner party, which you don't, but you met somebody and they say, what do you do? And you say, "Teacher," now. Whereas before you Mm. said, colonist for the FT, Do people treat you differently?
4: Yeah, I mean, this has not worked out as I expected at all. And I think there's a sad irony in this, that the status of teaching in this country is abysmally low, abysmally low. My young colleagues cannot believe what I've given up, to become a teacher. My students can't believe what I've given up to become a teacher. That is a tragedy. But the weirdest thing, those very people who are going, ooh, columnist on the Financial Times, and now my age, and they are even more going, oh, teacher. And that's because at the very tip top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, is the search for meaning. And so if you're as old as me, and you're saying, actually, I don't want that other stuff anymore, what I want is meaning, is I've now completely hit the jackpot and have the status too. So very, yeah, so so that's very strange. But the sad thing is that the status goes to people my age and the other now teachers, just dropping in the name of my charity, who um, the 500 of us sort of relative oldies in the classroom, all of their friends think this is amazing because actually the stories that you have to tell about a classroom are so much more interesting than uh, the stories of what you get up to in the office.
1: Since you've done it, have you found a lot of other people who are kind of interested in going down this path that you've gone?
4: Well, we've got 500 people have become teachers nice. through through now teach, which is completely fantastic. And so, yes, and I hope some of the people listening today will do the
0: same thing. Uh,
1: I'm going to take, um, we're going to come to audience questions later, but it's just, I'm going to weave the questions in now. Why do you think the <laughs> status of teaching is abysmally low?
4: Yeah, it's, I, oh God, why is it so low? I don't really know. I mean, I think whoever said, you know, those, those who can't teach, I would really like to do something very nasty to them indeed. I I, I think it's a long historic thing in this country. And I don't you re- think it's this country. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's definitely this country. I mean, in, in, in other countries, um it's as difficult to become a teacher as it is to become a doctor. And there's no actual reason why that shouldn't be the case. I mean, isn't teaching our children the most important thing? that one can imagine doing. So, I mean, I think it is very, very bizarre. And I think it's a whole series of historic accidents. But then the question with value reassert, or with money reasserts itself, that, you know, teachers are, are paid so little too. And much, much, le- and, and, and the relative pay of teachers is lower in this country much than in others.
3: Can I actually ask a question on that point? Because I was quite interested, I mean, your entire story is really incredibly compelling, but I think for a lot of, young people myself included for a while still um you know it's i'd love to know do you think you would have or could have made the same decision you did had you not as you said been in quite a comfortable financial position because i think a lot of young people face sort of this dichotomy where you have to choose something that might reflect you know your passion and what you want to do versus you know being the first generation in history to be worse off than our parents that you know many jobs be quite low paid um and whether you think That is something that's just out of reach unless you have that financial security.
4: No, it's obviously not out of reach in that most teachers, even in London, where property prices are astronomical, are still very, very young. But I think, you know, I look at them and wonder how they are managing, you know, all living, lots of people in a house renting a tiny little room, um, and and, and that's made very, very difficult, and it's extremely tempting to jack it in. I think what actually happens is that lots of people do want to be teachers, and then they go into the job, and it's a combination of it being very, very hard work and very, very little money means that half the teachers leave within five years, and that's an absolute disaster. Oh. Half. Leave with them five years. What a disaster.
1: Yeah. Let us come back to ESG. And Simon Adrian, is there a way to make ESG more
2: meaningful, make it more purposeful? One of the most astonishing things, and the industry loves names and, and all sorts of ways to define things. Why, do you, why in people's minds are the E, S, and G equal weighted? To me, you want to talk about G. If you are doing good governance, the other stuff should follow. So I think there should be a much greater emphasis on, is the company well managed? Is it doing the right things with plurality on its board? Is it, you know, start with the G? How do you
4: know, by the way? More. Well,
2: and if you, and I've talked to emerging market managers who buy companies in the Philippines, and they say, we can't track some of these. You know, it's just not possible. So that's the other big problem. So by and large, the G would appear listening to people who are running companies to be a little bit more, uh, visual, because you can look at the boards and makeup. You can look at the employees. You can go to the factories or the workplaces and 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 feel some of these things that are more readily identifiable. But it's far from perfect.
3: I mean, I think that's a really interesting point. And Simon definitely has, you know, the upper hand here in terms of what is Sage investment advice. So please disregard everything that I say from the perspective of investment advice. Um, and I think that's quite an interesting interesting point. For me, I guess when it comes to whether or not ESG then translates into, for example, helping us to address the climate crisis. You can take a company like Shell or BP, which I think you could say are quite well managed. You know, they've got, you know, quite robust governance systems, et cetera. But nonetheless, you know, publicly listed companies are sitting on three times the amount of fossil fuel reserves that we can burn to stay within a 1.5 degree Celsius limit and are continuing to explore for additional fossil fuel reserves. And that is, I think, both ecologically disastrous, but also likely, you know, a financially questionable decision from the perspective of stranded asset risk, for example, some would argue. And so I wonder whether in terms of the material outcomes as opposed to you know, benefits in terms of being a sound financial investment, whether governance always is is the key ticket there.
1: Adrian, let me have give you another audience question. reads: I completely understand your point of view about ESG, but is there a sense that radical change can't ever happen within these huge companies? Do they
3: need to disappear
1: before we can save the planet?
3: By huge companies, do we mean Shell and BP? Is, that, is this coming I, from
1: I, I don't know. They, they may be from someone online, so I can't answer that question. So... Well, let's imagine all sorts of companies. I mean, you know, defense contractors, I don't know, cereal producers, whatever.
3: Sure. I mean, I think, you know, there are lots of good people with working within corporations that are agitating for change. But ultimately, you know, a Shell and a BP is continuing to produce fossil fuels and continuing to explore for more because they are motivated by what they view to be, you know, on different time horizons, a profitable pursuit. And so my perspective would be that ESG, I think, as I said, is a welcome kind of social shift in consciousness. But I consider it a potentially dangerous distraction from where I think, In my view, people should be directing their energy, which is sort of demanding a much more robust regulatory framework and sort of government-based approach to regulating uh, carbon emissions, to regulating fossil fuels, um, and to not shy away from that being something that we need to be doing rather than thinking that, you know, it's it's enough to just be sort of making our own portfolios sustainable.
1: Right. Um, I don't know whether you are so busy on playground duty at 7 and then... marking people's maths papers uh, later on that you don't have time to follow this debate. I kind of got a sneaky feeling that you do have a view on where what you've heard from Simon and Adrian? Yeah,
4: actually, I did try and ban myself from reading the FT completely in my first days as a teacher to try and make the juxtaposition between the two worlds less intense. Actually, I used to be an energy correspondent. So in the dark ages, before we thought about any of these things, there were companies that I knew very, very well. I think that if we suddenly say we can't have big companies where... We're in a sort of fantasy land. I mean, we do have the big companies, they exist. We've got to look at this pragmatically. Um, maybe, you know, should they should they stop exploring for fossil fuels completely? I don't know. I think that these are arguments that you do need to put the numbers on them, probably to some extent. And going back to what you were saying earlier, Simon, which is that you know, it's a matter of, it's you know, it, it it it's a matter of process. I mean, I'm amazed at how much at least the lips in lip service companies like BP and Shell have moved and are doing very much to the point of um, the Norwegian, yeah. what's his name again? Nikolai Thang. Yeah. You. So if Nikolai says it, I'm with Nikolai, basically. Okay. I guess that's what I'm saying. That's really interesting. I, just a question to all of you on the panel. The environmental protest
1: movement has been sort of characterized and personalized in the name of Greta Thunberg, the extraordinary campaigner. But has she? advance the cause because it seems that, you know, it's just no to industry and it's, you know, seeming to take an absolutist position, which I, I think a lot of people that are working within companies might find unrealistic to just think, well, we're not going to do that anymore. And that has that actually, if you, if you need cooperation between the environmental lobby and people who are, you know, and, and, and business, that maybe that's not the right way to go about it.
3: You know, I think actually it's quite it's quite healthy when it comes to something that is as intensely political and as, you know, potentially catastrophic as what we're facing to have a little bit of antagonism. It may be, you know, that many people who work within the corporate space will find, as you said, what she advocates highly unrealistic. From her perspective, the idea that we can have a sort of smooth corporate-led response to... A tremendous crisis, particularly from someone that is, you know, as young as she is, probably also seems quite unrealistic from the perspective of science. So I think it's okay to have what might be two highly antagonistic positions, and I don't think that's necessarily detrimental to the cause, provided that it has people talking and generating debate. I think debate is in and of itself always a good thing to have, and I think that you know, had she been more gentle in her framing, she probably wouldn't have had, you know, the impact that she's had.
2: Yeah, but people don't want to talk about the pensioners who rely on the dividends from these companies. They don't want to talk about the employees who are earning money and are doing a decent job at those firms. And what about when you want to take your child to the doctor and they're blocking the M25? So I think that you know, protest channel correctly is important for evolution and change. But back to, to your point, and where I do disagree is to get through this energy transition, if you stop, and BP and Shell are exploring, but the industry in aggregate has shut up CapEx. So they have not been investing. And this is why we have particular problems. Gas storage tanks have been shut down. These guys have not been able to get finance to continue to explore. And you have to get through this transition. This is not three or four years. To get from BP statistical review, 82% of you know, energy comes from hydrocarbons. Well, from 82% to 20 requires nuclear. It requires all sorts of you know, progress because the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. And so, it's a little bit of smell the coffee, is my view. Do you, think, do you think the business itself is going
1: to deliver the, the change to the environment that is needed if you accept that there is a, a climate crisis, that the business will adapt of its own volition because it sees that the little seal does it need to kick up the backside.
2: Look, I think protest and debate is absolutely essential for change. And I think it's happening. Talking to as many, on the Money Maze podcast, we get to listen to really interesting people running businesses around the world. And I would say that almost without exception, there is a sense of urgency that was absent. So I absolutely acknowledge that that discussion, debate, you know, making these polemical protests with a small P, you know, have their place. But you know, we have to have functioning economies and we have to have global progress that allows those Bangladeshi workers to move up the pay scale and to enrich themselves. So the way in which you do it is
4: not shutting down factories. Well, we're not going to stop people wanting to create money. I mean, people are, especially people who don't have any, they are just going to want some. That just seems to be a fact, and there's no amount of changing opinions that will that will change that. But maybe, as Adrienne says, maybe we will pull back from this desire to put a price on absolutely everything. And as the thought of cataclysm looms larger and larger and larger, it will be something that we will all in our individual decisions value alongside, but I think we're a hell of a long way from that at the minute.
1: Uh, actually, I, I want to ask another question, but Adrian, I want to come back to you on that. Just, just do you share that analysis that an awful, you know, yes, some young people are deeply, deeply <clears throat> concerned about the environment, but it's by no means all.
3: Yeah, I actually really do. And I think um, it's one of the things that I find really concerning coming out of, you know, a lot of politicians, for example, is this idea that, like, the kids are all right and, you know, look at all these kids out on these student climate protests and isn't it wonderful and they're going to solve the problems. I think that's a huge abdication of responsibility. But I also completely agree with your analysis, and I, you know, don't have my own evidence for it, but anecdotally it seems correct to me that, you know, the ability, the freedom to sort of have the luxury, frankly, to think about this as an issue is something that comes from not having immediate poverty and sort of income insecurity. And I think this comes back to your question as well, and back to maybe I'll, you know, I hammer on about it too much, but the uncomfortable reality of this, which is that, you know, the climate crisis is something that we're going to have to resolve by thinking about the way that we distribute the tremendous amount of wealth that exists in this world. And right now it's done in a way that is unbelievably unequal and that creates desperation that creates you know insecurity in a way that you can't necessarily engage with all sorts of issues and so by giving people you know much more basic security in their lives i think we can address a lot of those issues now maybe that's politically naive but it's where i think you know the cracks of the issue lies which is in just radically and unjustifiably unequal distributions
1: we've only got a few minutes left and there's an audience question which has come in online Can we change societal values? Can we shift society from caring about money so much?
4: So first of all, I don't think we should view money as bad. Money is neutral. Money, just to go back to my bossy economist's point, money is what happens when you have allow a buyer and a seller to put a price on something. I think it's it's absolutely fine. You've you've got to have money in in an economy. So, I I would disagree with the implied idea in that that we need to move away from money. I don't think we do. I think we need to look at how that money is distributed, which is a completely different point. I think that... We need a more equal distribution of money. And once we have that, then maybe we can start to to think about other things. Can societies change? Well, of course they can. They do all the time. Societies change in in what they value absolutely massively. It happens without anyone's agency at all. It just is one of those sort of weird things. And we all often change in the same way. I don't think that you can change values by telling people to change. I think we change as a response of, to things that are happening in the world.
2: Well, there are two questions, aren't there? Can you change societal values? Of course, we see it. witnessed a regime, generations review things, do things differently. Can we change society from caring about money so much? I worry when I hear the term distribution of income because it smacks of sort of, you know, what did Churchill say? The Labour believed in the uh, in the queue, the Conservatives believed in the ladder. I think there's a little bit of People want to get richer. They should not be, you know, uh, frowned upon for that aspiration. It is about, you know, progress. I think that the touch of hypocrisy of the West telling developing countries that they need to not cut down forests and the rest of it is an awkward one because they can turn around and say, well, you've already made it. So I think the West has to accept that they need to be leaders in this and others will hopefully follow. But I think that, you know, we don't make progress, you know, in the broader economic context that allows other progress unless capitalism thrives.
3: Final thoughts on that same question? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I guess my slightly cynical perspective on it would be that I would like to think that we will change the way that we think about what we value in, in time to address ecological crisis, but I think... Realistically, probably it's going to come to a point where, as Lucy said, conditions change such that we are forced to reconsider things. And I think we're, you know, rapidly approaching that kind of, of a future. And that's probably what's going to prompt a major kind of reevaluation of the way that we, that we work and the way that we produce and the way that we distribute. But I don't think we're
1: there yet. Right. My final question to each of you is I want to know some one thing that you value deeply that you can't put a price on.
2: Love for your children.
1: I'd go along with that.
4: Mm. I'm not pausing because I wonder whether I go along with that. Of course I blink and go along with that. <laughs> I mean, we all go along with that. You know, But I'm trying to think of something surprising. Yeah, my train was on time today. You do a price on that particularly, so I've already bought the ticket. I mean, look, that's at, its most, that, that, you know, that's at its most mundane level. I actually think that the things that we really do value, price doesn't got much to do with it at all.
3: I mean, you stole my answer, so I guess I will just say Wales. Oh, hold on.
1: <laughs> or even prime ministers who told the truth. Oh, no, I, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't go, no, I did not go. Um, listen, all of you, thank you very much indeed for being part of this. I hope this is the start of a conversation, not the end of one. Thank you to White Tree for putting this on uh, for another uh, stimulating debate. But for now, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. <laughs>